It's Tuesday, August 24th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Radio Free Oz on RadioFreeOz.com. There's weather everywhere on the web here on Whidbey Island. It's late August, and it's so cold. I love it. <laughs> I'm your cold host, Peter Bergman. My cold co-host, cold David co-host. Osmond. <laughs> it's true, David. I mean, I can't believe it. No summer. This I- has been a springless, summerless year here on the island, except for a day or two here and there. It's, That's it. But... um. Everywhere else, people are dying. So I know. I think we're lucky. And the GOP is now emboldened to say there is no global warming. We'll hear more about that. But basically, there now that now that you know things are getting close, and people think Obama's a Muslim, it's time to bring up all the other doubts. Oh yeah. Well, speaking of doubts, you know, this is uh, all that border stuff down there in Arizona. I hope everybody knows that we have this wonderful program. It's called Secure Communities. No, never heard of that. Uh huh. Well, that's what's sending everybody down along the border. This thing called secure communities, okay, is to encourage local police force to to pick up people on the street because they're illegal aliens or else they're not or they're criminals or maybe they aren't criminals or whatever. Doesn't matter. Pick them up. Secure communities, you know. Right. Okay. The Immigration and Customs Enforcement records show that a vast majority, 79% of people deported under secure communities, had no criminal records or had been picked up for low-level offenses like traffic violations and juvenile mischief. That's 79% of the deportees. Of the approximately 47,000 people deported in that period of time, only about 20% have been charged with or convicted of serious, quote, level one crimes like assault and drug dealing. The national average of secure communities deportees with no criminal records was about 26%, but that figure also varied wildly around the country. It was 54% down there in Maricopa County, where the sheriff just busts everybody he can. And uh, uh, in Travis, Texas, Travis, Texas, 82% of people deported had not done anything. You know, they, they say that there is, and this is just a theory which we'll have to look into, that there is a connection between high rates of deporting innocent people and sexual dysfunction. But we'll have to get into I that I think later. we should go along and, uh, yeah, investigate some secretaries of and undersecretaries of. Absolutely. And some secretaries and, and, and who, under the secretaries. And who's uh, under the secretaries of? The undersecretaries. Time magazine tells us that... Uh, As if the growing number of smoking bans in restaurants, airplanes, and other public places isn't sending a strong enough message, researchers now have the first biological data confirming the health hazards of secondhand smoke. Scientists led by Dr. Ronald Crystal at the Weill Cornell Medical College documented changes in genetic activity among non-smokers triggered by exposure to secondhand cigarette smoke. So you breathe in a little bit of that stuff and your genes start getting active in the wrong direction. Public health bans on smoking have been fueled by strong population-based data that links exposure to secondhand cigarette smoke and a higher incidence of lung diseases such as emphysema and even lung cancer, but do not establish a biological cause for the correlation. Now, for the first time, researchers can point to one possible cause. The passive recipients' genes are actually being affected. 
Crystal's team devised a study in which 121 volunteers, some of whom smoked and some of whom had never smoked, agreed to have samples of their airway cells studied for genetic activity. Subjects also provided urine so the researchers could measure the amount of nicotine and its metabolites, like continine, for an objective record of their exposure to cigarette smoke. Airway cells that line the bronchus, from the trachea all the way down to the tiny alveoli, deep in the lungs, are the first cells that confront cigarette smoke, whether it is inhaled directly from a cigarette or secondhand from the environment. Crystal's group hypothesized that any deterioration in lung function associated with cancer or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, including emphysema and bronchitis, in which the lungs lose their ability to take air, would begin with these cells. And indeed, that's what he and his team found. The researchers removed airway cells from the volunteers using a bronchoscope and tested all 25,000 identified human genes in them to determine which ones were active, either turned on or off, in response to the cigarettes. The results suggest that the genetic changes among the low-exposure volunteers, some of whom's exposure is exclusively secondhand, mimic those of smokers and represent the first molecular steps towards later lung disease. Oh my, my. What is interesting to me is how sensitive the lung cells are to any cigarette smoke, Crystal said. It doesn't matter if you are uh, walking into a cocktail party where other people are smoking or if you smoke one cigarette a week. No matter what level of exposure you have, your lung cells know it and they are responding. It's sort of like canaries in the coal mine. They are crying out and saying, I'm changing here. I'm changing the genes that I turn on and off in response to this environmental stress. Help me. Well, it's not often that I agree with Sarah Palin. Uh, I mean, what? Well, yeah. Ha ha, Pete. Huh? I, I despise her. You know, <laughs> and, and I used to think that she was just a frivolous quitter. Uh-huh. But she's a lot more dangerous than I thought. Nonetheless, mm-hmm. she has involved herself in the Dr. Laura quitting over the N-word situation. Oh, right? yes. Isn't uh, that a big pop story? Well, it's, it's, let me read you what a blogger named Gawker wrote into uh, Talking Points Memo, and we can talk Even about NPR it. Even NPR was doing this story this morning. But go ahead. And, Let's and, find and there's some an, value in and, it. Well, and there's, there's a special codicil that okay. you'll like that's personal. Did, and this is what Gawker said. Did you know that the First Amendment gives every American the right to a nationally syndicated radio show? I sure didn't, but I learned that it's true from former governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin. She told me, sometimes it feels like you can't go five minutes without learning something from Sarah Palin, assistant professor of folksy wisdom at half-understood university. Today, we were treated to some wisdom on the Constitution when Doc Palin decided to weigh in on the troubling plight of conservative radio host Laura Schlesinger. See, Dr. Laura, as she is affectionately known, not by me, recently decided to resign after being widely condemned for a radio broadcast cast where she used the N-word several times, just because Sarah Palin, like all real Americans, was outraged and took to her native mode of communication, the Twitter, to express her emotions. I want to read the Twitter to you and explain it. says, <laughs> Sarah's Doc- Twitter. Dr. Laura, colon, don't retreat, dot, 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 reload, steps aside, because, B.C., her first amend rights ceased to exist because two activists trying to silence. Isn't America not fair? This is, this, yeah, she's really talking now. <clears throat> or, yeah, it's, it's, it's just inarticulate syllables, but. 
What she happened? Means something. Yeah, what happened was that Laura Schlesinger was talking about the incongru- incongruous situation that on HBO and various other shows, African Americans can use the N word in relationship to one another, often felicitously. You know, it's like almost like "hello, hi, guy." You know, "hi, buddy." Mm-hmm. But someone she said with not enough melanin, I think was her expression, says it, and they get in terrible trouble. But she used the N word like eleven times. She says, "You know, you know, it's always N word, N word, N word. Why can't I say N word, N word, N word?" She just flew at it, right? And there was this huge outcry. And in response, she quit. She wasn't fired by all at all. She quit. And the interesting thing is, yeah. is that you know where her home base is? What? Okay. I worked for two years on a CBS radio station in LA, a great radio station called KFWB. And all of a sudden, it was turned upside down. I and the rest of the staff, almost except for like four people, were fired. And in walks Laura Schlesinger. It became her, what do you call it, your home base. Really? Her state of grace, yeah. And a bunch of other right-wing schmageggies. Yet everybody had to go. Just about. There were like four, five, six people stayed. At first, they fired half of us. I was low man on the totem pole. I'd come in early, you know, and I was doing, you know, overnight. And then they got rid of everybody else except for like four or five people. And then because, oh, Laura's here. And now Laura's quit. Not fired, just condemned and quit. Okay, so the blogger says, all right, I don't know what you're thinking. How were Dr. Laura's First Amendment rights violated? Isn't she just receiving heavy criticism for her casual use of an offensive racial slur on the radio? And isn't that criticism, in fact, a beautiful example of the First Amendment, which is designed to, as Supreme Court Justice William Douglas put it, invite dispute and create dissatisfaction? Hmm? These questions arise from a mistaken reading of the First Amendment, because now we've got Palin's reading. Is this the blogger is still talking here? Okay. Unfortunately, shared by most constitutional scholars, this mistake is that when a person's rights to freedom of speech are not violated by vigorous criticism or public condemnation. As Professor Palin implies, a correct reading of the First Amendment endows every American with a right to host a radio show and to use the N-word without even being criticized. And when Dr. Laura was criticized by disgusting activists and decided to resign, it was an abhorrent example of Congress making laws to abridge the freedom of speech and basically means the U.S. is now under Sharia law. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Congress didn't have anything to do with it. No, but he's being, you know, he's, he's being... He's exaggerating. Yeah, in other words, that, that, you know, and so Palin's got it all upside down, but people don't have the brains to figure it out. Yeah, why should she have to quit just because she used the N-word? Uh... She didn't, well, she wasn't fired. She quit because she was, I mean... So maybe her marriage is bad. Maybe her dog is sick. I don't know. So when I said I agreed with Palin, yeah. <clears throat> she made some earlier statements. And I also think, although it was, it was not properly handled, the fact is there is a real disconnect between the ability to use the N-word if you're an African-American and to use it or not use it and the consequences thereof if you're a non-African-American. See, it's, it's the okay, no okay, And it's so charged. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful look at American society, right, based on words. And um, it's because people lack a sense of humor. They can't see anything in context. Everything has to be taken outside of context and weighed as to its correctness in that sense. Well, it's, I think that the case is that there is nothing long. Everything is only as long as you can shoot with your iPhone so so obviously it there's no long statements it's just what's abridged and what is delivered in sound bites to the public i think the whole thing is like um a tempest in a tea party 
This swell look at life by Robert Reich comes to us from the HuffPost via his blog, robertreich.org. That's R-E-I-C-H. It's nonsense, he says, to think of the economy heading downward again into a double-dip recession when most Americans never emerge from the first dip. We're still in one long, big dipper. And I used to call this the greater depression. There's the Great Depression, but that's not good enough for us because we're marketeers. We're Americans. We're selling the American century or the post-American century or last year's model. This is not the Great Depression. This is the Greater Depression. Bob Reich beat me to it. I think he's better. This is the Big Dipper. More people are out of work today than, than last year, counting everyone too discouraged even to look for work. And there's a lot of them. The number of workers filing new claims for jobless benefits rose last week to the highest level since February, not counting temporary census workers. A total of only 12,000 net new private and public jobs were created in July when 125,000 were needed each month just to keep up with the growth in the population of people who want to and need to work. We did a story on this in which uh, instead of is like 37,000 was being formed a month instead of 125. And that meant we were going to get back to so-called full employment by the year 2030. 2030, if we're only putting in 12,000 jobs a month, it's, it's like science fiction land. It's going to be the 23rd century and Argon 6 will turn to Jewel 7 and say, I think we're only a century away from what they used to call full employment. If I weren't a robot, I could probably have some sort of visceral reaction. Not since the government began to measure the ups and downs of the business cycle has such a deep recession been followed by such anemic job growth. Jobs came back at a faster pace even in March 1933 after the economy started to recover from the depths of the Great Depression. Of course, that job growth didn't last long. That recovery wasn't really a recovery at all. The Great Depression continued. And that's exactly my point, says Bob Reich. The Great Recession continues. Even investors are beginning to see reality. Starting in February, the stock market rallied because corporate profits were rising briskly. Investors didn't mind the profits were coming from payroll cuts, foreign sales, and gimmicks like share buybacks, none of which could be sustained over the long term, and none of which, of course, created jobs. But the rally died in April when investors began to see how paper-thin these profits actually were. Oh, yeah, really. And now the stock market is back to where it was at the start of the year. And trust me, folks, it's <laughs> the roller coaster is about to begin for the stock market. What to do, says Bob. First, don't listen to Wall Street and the right. Oh, that's good advice. Forget the neo-Hoover deficit hawks who say we have to cut government spending and trim upcoming deficits. We didn't get into this mess and aren't remaining in it because of budget deficits. In fact, the only way to reduce long-term deficits is to restore jobs and growth so government revenues rise and expenses like unemployment insurance drop. Yeah, try and tell that not only to the Tea Party, but an awful lot of Americans who think somehow that the deficits are ruining us and our future is being taken away by the deficits. They're really believing that stuff. And it's just propaganda. Ignore the government haters, says Bob, who say we have to void or delay upcoming regulations of Wall Street and big business. We got here because Wall Street went bonkers, the housing bubble burst, and the middle class couldn't continue to spend because their health care bills were soaring and their pay was stagnating. New regulations of Wall Street and big business are necessary to avoid a repeat. And don't believe the supply siders who say we have to extend the Bush tax cuts for the wealthy. Because the wealthy save rather than spend most of their incomes, extending their tax cut won't do squat. 
And restoring their marginal tax rate to what it was under Bill Clinton won't harm the economy. No, it won't make those babies go crying home. The Clinton years had the best sustained economy in American history. The central problem is lack of demand. And that's what has to be tackled. Three of the four sources of demand have stopped working. Well, here's some good news. One doesn't work, which is consumers can't and won't buy because they're still under a huge debt load and can't get any more credit. And they're afraid of losing their jobs or already have depend on two wage earners or at least one of whom is working part-time and pulling in less and they all have to save. That strategy doesn't work. Two, businesses won't invest and spend on creating more jobs if they don't see consumers willing to buy more. Sounds like catch-22 to me, but for you folks, catch-2195. Exports are stalled because the dollar is so high they cost too much. Much of the rest of the world is still struggling with recession, and American firms can't make things for sale abroad more cheaply right? than they, they can here. I mean, it, it just can't be done. That leaves only one remaining source of demand government. That happens to be, by by the way, us. This government is not something that lives off on Mars, created by unknown aliens. The government is us, baby. We need a giant jobs program to hire people and put money in their pockets that they'll spend and thereby create more jobs. Put ideology aside and recognize this fact. If it makes you more comfortable, call it the National Defense Job Acts. Call it the WPA. Call it chopped liver. I think that's one. It's not the New Deal anymore. Not the new New Deal. It's the new chopped liver. Whatever. We have got to get the great army of the unemployed and underemployed working again. That's the army we should be supporting with yellow ribbons. Not necessarily the army of contractors and drone technicians and various other doofos out there doing this bad job of world imperialism, which is costing us money, costing us our, 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 our moral stance. It's just costing us. Also, says Reich. Put more money in consumers' wallets by eliminating payroll taxes on the first 20000 of income and make it up by applying payroll taxes to incomes over 250000 Agreed. Also, get more hiring by giving the states and locales interest-free loans so they can rehire all the teachers, firefighters, police officers, and sanitation workers they've fired to be repaid when their state employment rates hit 5% or below. I like it. Also, get more credit by having the Fed return to quantitative easing, i.e. expanding the money supply by purchasing mortgage-backed and other types of securities. Get the money out there. Pump priming, I believe is what Keynes called it. Get the pump going. The pump is dry. Come on, spit in the pump and prime it up. If we let the deficit hawks and the government haters dominate this debate as they have, the Big Dipper will continue for years. The Great Depression lasted 12. And 12, like 13, is not a lucky number. I'm basically, I'm an optimist, Dave, and I've always believed that the American public can bounce back from wherever they are. I mean, and, and slowly that confidence has been eroded, all right? And I'm, I'm always looking for the good side. But then I read that a substantial and growing number of Americans say that Barack Obama is a Muslim, while the proportion saying he's a Christian has declined. Uh, uh, excuse me. I mean, I just, I don't care how many times those gizmos on Fox and all of those uh, ayatollahs, you know, with crosses burned into their heads, tell you he is a Muslim. The fact that anybody would believe this is beyond my ken. 
more than a year and a half into his presidency, a plurality of the public says they do not know what religion Obama follows. This is a man that has uh, pastors over all the time who gets biblical quotes on his Blackberry every day, who goes to church every Sunday and appears to mean it, who has a fabulous a house, you know, you know, a, a, a married life. Nobody wears a veil, right? And yet they're not sure. A new national survey by the Pew Research Center, which is a pretty good one, oh, says yeah. one in five Americans now say Obama's a Muslim. One out of every five people on the street says the man is a Muslim. That's up from 11% mm. a year ago. Mm. Only about one-third of adults of adults say that Obama's a Christian, down from 48%. That's huge. And 48% say, I don't know what religion he's got. All right, so the view that Obama's a Muslim is more widespread among political opponents than the backers. Roughly a third of conservative Republicans say he's a Muslim, as do 30% who disapprove of his job performance. When asked how they, they learned about Obama's religion in an open-ended question, 60% of them say they say Obama's a Muslim, cite the media. Among specific media sources, television, 16%. Uh, 11% say that Obama's a Muslim. They learned it through Obama's own words and behavior. Like what? This was, this was done before he supported the mosque. Oh, yeah. It's before he got up and said, mm. May basically, I think there's something called freedom of religion, and these people are just building a mosque, and I think we ought to, you know, oh, he's a Muslim. And what else? Oh, yes. And here's a couple of questions that were asked. Just, Do you think the Muslims should be allowed to run for the president of the United States? Yes, 61%. No, 32%. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes sense. Should a Muslim serve on the Supreme Court? Yes, 65%. No, 28%. 28%. It is a, it is a truism in this country for as 40 years at least of my experience that a third of the people in the country are either absolutely right or dead wrong. Yeah. A third of the people are so hopelessly ignorant or so unwilling to fight another war, depending upon which decade you're talking about. Now we've got a third of the people. You didn't give the figures about the people who now don't believe that he has a passport or a birth certificate. Oh, that's all part of it. I'm sure their full goes in, because anybody that says he doesn't have a birth certificate, and who was it uh, that said, uh, oh, yes, there, talk about bad seed dropping from a fairly good tree. Billy Graham's son. You know, Billy Graham, you may not be big into Christian missionary and all, yada, yada, but the fact is that Billy Graham was a basically good man, did not say people were going to hell, worked through many administrations without making any real political moves. He was he was a— Probably kept Richard Nixon from going totally stark-raving yeah, right, mad. Yeah, he was the first stadium preacher. Yeah. Well, and, and a fairly okay guy. I shared mm. a stage with him once when I did one of my TEDs. He was there, and he mm-hmm. was a nice person to talk with, okay? So his son, who has now taken over, right, says that the problem that, that with, with Obama is that he's got the seed of Muslimism in him, that he was born a Muslim and can never shake it. Now, he wasn't Ooh. born a Muslim. He wasn't born a Muslim. But that's so weird. That's the, the seed. Ba- the, seed the, the, the bad seed of Muslimism. What, what's, what bothers me about mm-hmm. all of this, the mm-hmm. secure communities kicking out people who yep. are innocent, the seed, this is, and I, I don't, I use this word and it doesn't capture it, but I'm trying to find a better one. It's very Nazi-like. I mean, I don't like to throw this word around because, of course, it's not a country completely Excuse hungry. Me, that's, the, s- that's the N-word. That truly is. That's the N-word, Pete. 
Here's Arthur Delaney in the Huff Post. It's about cutting food stamps from from poor families as a way of balancing the budget. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of the Congress. I really am. The Democrats, stand up. Stand up. To help prevent a pair of domestic spending bills from adding to the national budget deficit, Democratic leaders in the Senate have proposed cuts to future food stamp funding, saving $14.1 billion over 10 years. $14.1 billion. That's 14 days in Afghanistan. Get a lot done there. Several Democrats have said they'll prevent the cuts, which will phase out a stimulus bill provision that increased families' monthly food stamp payments from ever taking effect. So are the planned cuts nothing more than an accounting gimmick to win yes votes from deficit hawks? Or are they a serious threat to families who rely on the money to feed their children? I just had this image, the deficit hawks. They swoop down on hungry children and have them for lunch. That's who they are. (laughs) Raptors. I do believe the Democrats are sincere in not wanting these cuts to go into effect, but I'm concerned that when the time comes, they won't be able to find a way to put the money back, said Elizabeth Lowerbosch, a senior policy analyst at the Center for Law and Social Policy. There's no precedent for this, and there isn't. In April 2009, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act boosted monthly benefits under the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, or SNAP, by 13.6%. As economic misery has worsened, participation in SNAP has risen since then from 34.4 million to 40.8 million as of May 2010. And it's higher now, you can bet on it. That's one out of every seven Americans. One out of every seven Americans is on food stamps. It's a glorious, wonderful time. There's no global warming. We're winning in Afghanistan. We're leaving Iraq. The tooth fairy exists. With the stimulus bill provisions, the average benefit is $133.77 per month. If the cuts take effect, the Food Research and Action Center, FRAC, estimates that a family of four will receive $59 less per month starting in November 2013. That'll leave them at about $60 a month on on, 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 uh, food stamps. They can buy pure starch. It's not the first time an unkind change has been made to food stamp policy, but experts say it would be (laughs) the first time ever that beneficiaries would receive less money from month to month under the program. The rate on SNAP must stop, said Frack in a statement. These are real cuts with real impact on low-income households who, for the first time, will see their benefits fall from one month to the next. Cutting the elevated SNAP funding to pay for a state aid bill is one of the most egregious cases of robbing Peter to pay Paul, wrote Representatives Keith Ellison of Minnesota and Jim McGovern of Massachusetts in a letter signed by 106 other Democrats protesting the cuts to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Oh, it is so unkind. It is so unthinking. But let's remember, up till now, the poor don't vote. What's that all about? What's it all about, Mr. and Mrs. John Q. Smith from Anytown, USA? Well, it's about this long. And about that wide. And it's about this country. About which we're singing about. Well, I was talking a while ago about the fact that uh, Billy Graham's son is really the bad seed. 
Now, I'm not saying that uh, that Irvin Robbins, who started Baskin and Robbins, was a bad seed, but his son certainly has turned good. John Robbins is the only son of Irvin Robbins, the co-founder and co-owner of Baskin Robbins, and was groomed by his father to run what at one time was the world's largest ice cream company. But John walked away from the company and the wealth it represented in order to advocate for a healthier and more compassionate way of life. Really? Yes. And mm. this from the Huff Post is his article about Monsanto. And, and the ice cream that you eat. Monsanto has been in the news this week with a U.S. District Court judge ruling that the USDA has to at least go through the motions of regulating the company's genetically engineered sugar beets. Okay? Monsanto, you may know, is not likely to win any contest for the most popular company. In fact, it has been called the most hated corporation in the world, which is saying something given the competition from HP, I mean BP, Halliburton, and Goldman Sachs. Oh, yeah. So... Things uh, got – he started to think about all this, you know, about Monsanto. And what came up was ice cream. Well, he is a, he is a yes, Robbins. He's ice cream man. And yeah. how Monsanto's clammy paws can be found in most of the widely selling ice cream brands in the country. These brands could break free from Monsanto's clutches. So far they haven't, but maybe that's about to change. Ben & Jerry gets all their milk from dairies that have pledged not to inject their cows with genetically engineered bovine growth hormone, RBGH. Ben & Jerry. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Why then? Well, they don't even own it anymore. No, you know, I know they don't. Some, I don't Some remember giant that. corporation yeah, but owns then, everybody. But. Then why can't Haagen-Dazs, Breyers, and Baskin-Robbins do the same? Starbucks now guarantees that all their milk, cream, and other dairy products are RBGH-free. Mm -hmm. So do Yoplait and Dan and Yogurts, Tillamook Cheese, Chipotle Restaurants, and many others. But ice cream giants Haagen-Dazs, Breyers, and Baskin-Robbins continue to use milk from cows injected with RBGH. I was wondering what why I, every time I eat one of those Haagen-Dazs things, you suddenly turn into cookie dough well it's it, it this uh, uh this hormone is yeah. banned in canada new zealand japan australia and all 27 nations of the european union and to add insult to injury haagen and briars have the audacity to tell us right on the label that their ice cream is all natural now we have monsanto to thank for our bgh they developed the artificial hormone and marketed aggressively years ago mm -hmm. then sold it to elanco the eli Lilly drug company they want us to think the hormone is in every way completely satisfactory and safe right but that's not true right uh i'll tell you what according to this man what what's mm -hmm. going on here okay uh, uh might there be compelling reasons not to want to get into RGBH? Yes. One is that injecting the genetically engineered hormone into cows increases the level of a substance called IGF-1 in their milk. Monsanto's own studies found that the amount of IGF-1 in milk more than doubled when cows were injected with RBGH. Studies by independent researchers show gains as much as sixfold. Does it matter whether there are excesses of IGH-1 in the milk, Dave? I don't know. Well, I'm going to tell what you and the, and the rest of the people here on the electronic, you know, super ones <laughs> okay. and zeros. It decidedly did to the European Commission's authoritative international 16-member scientific committee. Uh-huh. Their report said the excessive levels of IGF-1 found in the milk of cows injected with the hormone, right, pose serious risks of breast, colon, and prostate cancer. Oh, ouch. S serious risks. How serious? According to an article in the May issue of The Lancet, which is the English yeah, yeah. yeah, premenopausal women with even moderately elevated blood levels of IGF-1 are up to seven times more likely to develop breast cancer than women with lower levels. And- yeah, this stuff's in your ice cream? Well, I mean, wait a second, but it's not in my ice cream. No, well, it, 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 I mean... 
as if these Maybe risks, it is in my ice cream. As, as if these risks to human health weren't enough for yeah. nations to prohibit the use of RGBH, there are more. The artificial hormone is also notorious for causing the cows much pain and distress. Cows are not happy creatures. It does this by increasing painful and debilitating diseases like lameness and mastitis in cows who are injected with it. And because it increases udder infections in cows, it has greatly increased the use of antibiotics in mm-hmm. the U.S. dairy industry. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to design a system to breed antibiotic-resistant bacteria, you'd be hard-pressed to do better. And here's the final. I love okay. uh, 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 yeah. Does the increase in udder infections have an effect on the milk and thus any ice cream, cheese, or other product made I from it? I don't know that I want to know this. David, it's too ahead. late. You're sitting across from Lock uh, the door. Uh, Most definitely, according to Dr. Uh, Richard Burroughs, a veterinarian deeply familiar with RGBH, quote, it results in an increase of white blood cells, he says, which means there's pus in the milk. What did you What did you say I could eat? Because I, I, my, my, my. No Hagen Dazs. No Briars. No, no, no Baskin what Robbins. What can we eat? You stick with the other stuff. It's hey, okay. Hey, you know, Whitby Island ice cream is made right here. Right. So it's local pus. No. Fat and docile, big and dumb They look so stupid, they aren't much fun Cows aren't fun They eat to grow, grow to die Die to be et at the hamburger fry Cows well done Nobody thunk it, nobody knew No one imagined the great cow guru Cows are one He hid in the forest Read books with great zeal He loved Che Guevara A revolutionary veal Cows say tongue He spoke about justice But nobody stirred He felt like an outcast Alone in the herd Cowed all drums He moved we must fight Escape or we'll die Cows gathered around Cause the stakes were so high Bad cow pun But then he was captured Stuffed into a crate Loaded onto a truck Where he rode to his fate Cows are bummed He was a scrawny calf Who looked rather woozy No one suspected He was packing an Uzi Cows with guns They came with a needle to stick in his thigh He kicked for the groin He pissed in their eye Cowell hung Knocked over a tractor And ran for the door Six gallons of gas Flowed out on the floor Run, cows, run He picked up a bullhorn And jumped up on the hay We are free-roving bovines We run free today We will fight for bovine freedom And hold our large heads high We will run free with the buffalo Or die Cows with guns 
crashed the gate in a great stampede, tipped over milk truck, torched all the feed. Cows have fun. Sixty police cars were piled in a heap, covered in cow pies, covered up deep. Much cow dung. Black smoke rising, darken in the day, twelve burning McDonald's. Have it your way. We will fight for bovine freedom and hold our large heads high. We will run free with the buffalo or die. Cows with guns. The president said, enough is enough, these uppity cattle, it's time to get tough. Cow dung flung. The newspapers gloated, folks sighed with relief. Tomorrow at noon, they would all be ground beef. Cows on buns. The cows were surrounded, they waited and prayed. They mooed their last moos, they chewed their last hay. Cows outgunned. The order was given to turn cows to whoppers, enforced by the might of 10,000 coppers. But on the horizon, surrounding the shoppers, came the deafening roar of chickens in choppers. We will fight for bovine freedom and hold our large heads high. This is Shadow Wars, part one. I'm going to read this entire uh, article from the New York Times about the Shadow Wars uh, in three parts today uh, because it's it's so important and so central to, to our future as a nation. No, the war in Afghanistan is not Obama's war. That's not fair. But the Shadow War, as its, <laughs> as its shadow spreads around the globe, it's his, unless he does something about it. And what he's doing right now is just the opposite of what we need. Hey, I love Obama. I'm a big Obama man, but I'm, I'm absolutely not going to step aside and let this shadow engulf our nation. At first, the news from Yemen on May 25th sounded like a modest victory in the campaign against terrorists. An airstrike had hit a group suspected of being operatives for Al-Qaeda in the remote desert of Marib province, birthplace of the legendary Queen of Sheba. But the strike, it turned out, had also killed the province's deputy governor, a respected local leader who Yemeni officials said had been trying to talk Qaeda members into giving up their fight. Yemen's president, Ari Abdullah Saleh, accepted responsibility for the death and paid blood money to the offended tribes. So, 
Oh, what, his uh, his army went wrong, made big mistake? Hmm, the strike, though, was not the work of Mr. Soleil's decrepit Soviet-era or Air Force. It was a secret mission by the United States military, according to American officials, at least the fourth such assault on al-Qaeda in the arid mountains and deserts of Yemen since December. The attack offered a glimpse of the Obama administration's shadow war against al-Qaeda and its allies. In roughly a dozen countries, from the deserts of North Africa to the mountains of Pakistan to former Soviet republics crippled by ethnic and religious strife, the United States has significantly increased military and intelligence operations pursuing the enemy using robotic drones and commando teams, paying contractors to spy, and training local operatives to chase terrorists. That's... That's, that's the core, okay? We're using American commandos. We're using drones. We're using contractors, mercenaries, right? You know, just we're looking for one good mercenary, and they aren't there, and training locals to spy and chase. The White House has intensified the Central Intelligence Agency's drone missile campaign in Pakistan, approved raids against Qaeda operatives in Somalia, and launched clandestine operations from Kenya. This is very serious, folks. This is the future of American military slash foreign policy. And if we don't do something about it now, our children are going to be growing up under this shadow. The administration has worked with European allies to dismantle terrorist groups in North Africa, efforts that include a recent French strike in Algeria, and the Pentagon tapped a network of private contractors to gather intelligence about things like militant hideouts in Pakistan and the location of an American soldier currently on Taliban hands. What if we had a true drafted army? What if we had a true drafted intelligence system where before we send these boys into harm's way, excuse me, boys and girls, you got to check with mom and dad. No, 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 no. We only send in the sons of the poor and then we hire the rest. The driftwood, the dross, the dregs, and the heroes get cashiered out of the army or come home after 18 consecutive duties. And what's left? Their, their home life has been broken. They become mercenaries and go back into the game. This is Rome. This is Rome in decline. While the stealth war began in the Bush administration, it has expanded under President Obama, who rose to prominence in part for his early opposition to the invasion of Iraq. Virtually none of the newly aggressive steps undertaken by the United States government have been publicly acknowledged. In contrast with the troop buildup in Afghanistan, which came after months of robust debate, yeah, robust debate, didn't he read the Eikenberry cables? Is that robust debate? The American military campaign in Yemen began without notice in December and has never been officially confirmed. Well, Barack, we're confirming it right now. No, I don't think you're a Muslim. I just think you're a fool sometimes. I think you're overawed by guys with fruit salad on their chests. I think... You have, uh, you, you have a deficiency. You have never been in the army. You have never been under fire. I don't think you get what's going on. You're as smart as they get. So if you don't get it, there's got to be something else happening. Obama administration officials point to the benefits of, uh, of bringing the fight against al-Qaeda and other militants into the shadows. Well, what are those? Afghanistan and Iraq, they said, have sobered American politicians and voters about the staggering costs of big wars that topple governments, require years of occupation, and can be a catalyst for further radicalization throughout the Muslim world. As if, 
initiating the shadow war isn't going to lead to larger conflicts. You really think that going around using missiles to kill people indiscriminately or discriminately, depending on how you look at it, is going to bring peace to these parts of the world? You don't think we're going to have to send in more bad boots into more bad ground? Well, you're kidding yourself. Instead of the hammer, in the words of John O. Brennan, President Obama's top counterterrorism advisor, America will rely on the scalpel. In a speech in May, Mr. Brennan, an architect of the White House strategy, used this analogy while pledging a multi-generational campaign against Al-Qaeda and its extremist affiliates. Multi-generational? Does that mean the next five generations of Americans? What is this bozo talking about? And scalpel? Isn't that, uh, aren't we talking about something like uh, surgical attacks? Doesn't the ghost of Vietnam come floating into the room again? Don't we ever learn? Or do these people really like doing this? I went to school with some of them at Yale. I know how they work. I know how they think. And it scares the bejesus out of me. Yet such wars come with many risks. Oh, really? The potential for botched operations that fuel anti-American rage, even the operations that succeed fuel anti-American rage. A blurring of the lines between soldiers and spies that could put troops at risk of being denied Geneva Convention protections. A weakening of the congressional oversight system put in place to prevent abuses by America's secret operatives. And a reliance on authoritarian foreign leaders and surrogates with sometimes murky loyalties. I love that, murky loyalties. Hell, the entire establishment in Pakistan is playing us double and killing us and taking our bushels of money. Hillary Clinton, the belle of Wellesley, arrives with bucks in a basket, and they're using it to put our boys in bags. The May strike in Yemen, for example, uh, provoked a revenge attack on an oil pipeline by local tribesmen and produced a propaganda bonanza for al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. It also left President Saleh privately furious about the death of the provincial official Jabir al-Shabawani and scrambling to prevent an anti-American backlash, according to Yemeni officials. The administration's demands have accelerated a transformation of the CIA into a paramilitary organization as much as a spying agency, which some critics worry could lower the threshold for future quasi-military operations. Yeah, you betcha. Yeah, you militarize those goofballs in the CIA, those alcoholic psychopaths. Man, you're going to have nothing, nothing but blood and trouble on your mind. You know, these, these, the agency has, has broadened its drone campaign beyond selective strikes against Qaeda leaders and, and women and children, and now regularly obliterates suspected enemy compounds and logistic convoys, just as the military would grind down an enemy force. But these are a bunch of young geeks sitting in an air-conditioned bunker in Las Vegas, joysticking innocent civilians to death. And we're all sitting around worrying about toxic mortgages. For its part, the Pentagon is becoming more like the CIA. There's another good piece of news. Uh, you know, one of the things that's always given me hope about this country is that we have a non-political Pentagon. It has never been part of a coup. The CIA worries me. And if the Pentagon is becoming more like the CIA and we're turning out hundreds of thousands of contractors armed and angry and addicted... 
Well, there just may be a possibility that an army, a coup army, is being is being aborn. Not consciously. Just the coming together of all of this ignorance and fear and panic. Where will it go? Oh, good Lord. Across the Middle East and elsewhere, special operations troops under secret executive orders have conducted spying missions that were once the, the preserve of civilian intelligence agencies with code names like Eager Pawn. That's what I feel like. I feel like an eager pawn. I've got to I've got to think about it. I'm not just one of the 10,000 dummies according to the Dow. I'm now one of the 10,000 eager pawns. Oh and, and excuse me. There's another code name I like. Indigo Spade. You could lose your radio show calling an operation an Indigo Spade. Such programs typically operate with even less transparency and congressional oversight than traditional covert actions by the CIA. Oh, my, oh, my. And as American counterism operations spread beyond war zones into territory hostile to the military, private contractors have taken on a prominent role, raising concerns that the United States has outsourced some of its most important missions to a sometimes unaccountable private army. Does that make your skin crawl a sometimes unaccountable army? Which means what? Sometimes they're accountable and sometimes they're not. Oh, mama, can this really be the end? Well, you know, Peter, the uh, the newspaper sometimes yields poetry, uh, quite willingly, really, at least for me, over the years. And uh, particularly in the 21st century, I've been working on and writing a number of news poems, I suppose you could call them. This one's called Rock Snot. Elegy. Rock snot travels on felt-soled boots. The long-haired man with green eyes blew his body right in two. Got it on my phone. Fifty dead men all around and their blood everywhere mingled with loose change, broken watches, bits of the cowardly attacker, whichever half, his head stuck on a fruit stand down the block. Rock snot keeps moving stream to stream, southward, softly, on felt-soled shoes. The overdressed windbag with stupid hair gets a hung jury. So goes old Chi-Town. And down south in Juarez, a smear of red, white, and blue blood thickens on the pavement, policia loitering, and a woman keens over the body whom we'll never know as the drug war goes on smoking across some desert border grid where nothing grows. Rock's not one diatomic cell at a time. Takes over Cape Cod. One day watermelons, next day slime. This guy Romsey bin al-Shib doesn't look like a guy you'd trust to mow your lawn, Bugs Bunny teeth, coal-eyed, droopy-lidded, stoned perhaps on God himself. A bad, bad guy, closeted in Cuba since aught six, who by now must know which way to face by the arrows CIA painted on the prison floors, and surely has finished his lessons on how to apply for a job opportunity in Yemen. Here's the thing. The CIA had that piece of rock snot in a prison they built in Morocco, Keef capital of the world. How did that happen? 
If I paid taxes, I'd wonder. A bad, bad Tom Cruiser of a purple plot. A make-believe, slies, still-here, muscle, man, gun, car, prison, human, hero, movie, all about this guy, Ramsey, from old Shibtown, who didn't have a chance to go down to the local employment line and part himself piously, body from soul, because, like Bing and Bob, the CIA could ship him off Morocco-bound. That's how the rock snot moves. One long-haired, green-eyed bomber at a time, one hung jury, one more body in the street, one bad, bad guy, one CIA prisoned in Morocco at a time, one felt soul at a time. And when you need a break from America, when it gets really scary around your money or your life, there's always Abu Dhabi and the Blackwater Princes. That's where the rock snot dies, on the soles of tough leather boots. Can't leave, Dave. Can't wander off into the unknown. Can't face the night without at least... A touch of tang. A touch of tang. How about autumn evening? Ooh, in, that's what it is. It's coming up. It's just like it anyway. This is a Wang Wei poem, and it really does Feels feel... like autumn here on the island. I was I was shivering last night, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, this is, our, this is just the way it is. After the rain that covered these mountains, the night air smells of fall. The moon gleams among long, needled pines. Rushing softly across its rocks, the creek glitters. Bringing their laundry home through the bamboos, women chatter. A fisherman poles his boat through the heavy lotus leaves, swaying. The spring flowers and their heavy odors are gone. Stick around anyway, old friend, for the beauty of fall. Ah, stick around for the beauty of fall. Because it's coming. We're here every day until it happens, Dave. We're going to be here till the autumn and beyond. Because we are Radio Free Oz on RadioFreeOz.com. The Oz team. Hey, there's me. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. Hey, there's him. And there's me. That's David Osmond, our co-host. There's a guy out there in the booth I'm looking at, Dave Maloney. Who he? Well, he's our audio engineer. He owned this place. He, He make it look so good. And then there's uh, Phil Fountain, head of the Oz Design Group, basically doing all the graphics, and Chaz Glass doing them financials, mm-hmm. and we got uh, John Cummins doing the ones and zeros, uh, and we got Patty Monet, who is on the sports desk, the sports desk, you say, <laughs> Tom Gedwillow, our web uh, runner, and uh, Scott Wilde, who makes the social media sing. Sing with you again tomorrow, baby doll. <laughs>